Our teaching this evening comes from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 28. And here we read from the Apostle Paul, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment upon themselves. This is God's word. It's really only once a year. For as often as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, like multiple times every month, it's once a year where we get to do a little bit of a, like a catechetical instruction specifically on what exactly the Lord's Supper is. And truly, every time we celebrate it, there's a little bit of education going on because as we pass out the elements Uh, We say, take and eat the body of Christ given for you. Take and drink the blood of Christ poured out for your sins. So there's some education going on there. And every time we do the words of institution, there's some education going on there for what it is. But this is the only time we get like a full Bible study lesson. And it's appropriate. As big as this meal is, it's appropriate for us once a year and probably on tonight that we go back and do a refreshing of what exactly this means and what it doesn't mean for that matter. Tonight, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 11, and this is the only spot out of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that records for us really careful instruction about the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to take it from that angle. From I'm thankful that the Corinthian church struggled with the practice as much as they did in some respects, because we benefit from that. The Apostle Paul helps clear up for us some misunderstandings about what communion is and how to go about practicing it. Now, in order to understand what he's teaching, though, the problem that was going on in uh, the city of Corinth, in the church of Corinth, we got to get a little bit of context for not only the early church in general, but Corinth in specific. If you're not offended by the phrase problem child, that might be the best way I can describe the relationship between the Apostle Paul and this particular church. It gave him more fits than his other congregations. They had more like worldly struggles. They had bigger egos. They had more of a temptation to go about forming their identity in a worldly kind of process. They had uh, seemingly more pride. And there's numerous times throughout the letter that he gives illustrations of that pride being manifested in their congregation. But the one we're looking at here this evening specifically is when they gather for worship. There's something happening when they gather for worship that's demonstrating a super unhealthy pride. Uh, And specifically, in order to appreciate what the problem is, you need to understand that the early Christian church, when it regularly gathered for worship in the Lord's Supper, it also, almost invariably, also celebrated what was called an agape feast. An agape feast was a fellowship meal that took place in conjunction with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. The agape feast was a time where, even though it's not commanded by God for God's people today, which is why we don't always celebrate. Some of you wish we would celebrate a meal every time we gather for worship, but we we don't. Uh, And we don't have to because it's not commanded by God. Uh, But fellowship is commanded by God. 
Loving and serving your fellow Christians in other focused, sacrificial, intimate, encouraging, accountability kinds of ways. That is commanded by God. And this was their intentional space for that type of practice to happen and ministry to happen to one another. It was part of the culmination of their worship service. So they would worship and then they would gather for this meal. And in the context of the meal, also celebrate the Lord's Supper. There's an issue going on here, though. And the issue is alluded to in a verse right before our particular text that I just read a second ago. You got to go back to verse 20, where the Apostle Paul says, when you guys are coming together, it ain't the Lord's Supper you're celebrating. This is not the Lord's Supper that you eat because each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry and another gets drunk. Now, that sounds really bizarre for us because we're thinking, how on earth is someone such a lightweight that they're getting drunk off one of these little individual cups of communion? Uh, on a, they're not, it's not off the communion. It's in the context of the agape feast that they're getting drunk. And you say, well, why is that happening? Well, it's happening because what happens for the agape feast is people bring food from home and they bring drink from home. And when they get together, they gather in these, you know, the, the local congregations, the house churches were maybe housed 30 to 60 people. And they sat down at maybe different tables in there. But they did the same thing that you and I tend to do, humans in general tend to do, which is uh, when we gather, we gather with people who are most superficially like us, people who are culturally like us, uh, people who politically have the same ideology, people gender the same, interests the same, and for that matter, socioeconomic class. It's part of the reason why we have things in our society like what we call rich neighborhoods and poor neighborhoods. Because human flesh defaults to gathering in the same way that kids in junior high gather in a cafeteria. We gather in the most superficial kinds of types of ways, right? Now, what's going on in the church in Corinth is they seem to have some factions that are based on their socioeconomic status. And the people who are wealthy bring a lot of food and a lot of drink, and they are totally gorging themselves on their food, and they're getting drunk on their wine, while simultaneously other people that don't have as much are leaving from that agape feast still hungry. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, in the agape feast, you've got no agape love. Now, what does that mean? Uh, he's basically saying, you guys have plenty to share, enough food and drink with everybody else, but you're clearly not thinking of the other person ahead of yourself, which can only possibly demonstrate the fact that you aren't consciously aware of the fact that everything Jesus did, he did for you ahead of himself. Because if you actually remember that, if you actually understood that, you wouldn't be behaving this way. This, by the way, is some of the harshest words that the Apostle Paul tells anybody in all of the New Testament. Uh, and he's basically saying, if you think you're better than anyone, if you have not forgiven anyone, if you are proudly impenitent, then I don't know what it is that you're celebrating. It, it's some kind of hypocritical religious ritual, which will ultimately bring judgment upon yourself. But it is not the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul is so upset because grace is at the heart of the gospel. And you can only mistreat other people like this if you have forgotten that you are a sinner who is saved only by the amazing, immense, and incomprehensible grace of God. Now, I'm going to try to make their particular issue a little bit more relevant as far as grasping it, a little bit deeper. And I'm going to use a couple different words to describe the issue that's going on here. Commentators will tell you right before our text and right after our text, there is a word that is used multiple times, before and after. In Greek, it's the word synerkomai, which basically is translated when, when you get together. 
And Paul is saying, when you guys get together, you're not really together. You're physically in the same location, but you're not actually together. And the reason for that is uh, another word that he uses regularly, which is the word for body. Now, you have to pay very close attention to the way the Apostle Paul uses the word body in this particular section of Scripture. So I would encourage you, at some point in time in the future, read through 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12 and read how he uses the word body. It's not always exactly the same, but there's a theme. Now, specifically, let me just give you a quick example to show you what I'm talking about. In, in chapter 10, the chapter right before this lesson, he says, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. He's very clearly referring, when he says body there, he's referring to what we would call the corporate, the corporation, the, the collection of congregations, okay? It's the believing community together. That's the body. The chapter right after our text, so that's right before our text, the chapter before, the chapter right after this, so 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he's talking about spiritual gifts and he says, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment upon themselves. When he uses body here, he is absolutely referring to the body of Christ as in the congregation. So before and after, when he talks about the body of Christ, he has referred to the congregation. What this tends to mean is those of us who grew up in with like Lutheran backgrounds, who properly and rightly believe in this thing called the real presence of Jesus Christ in communion. I think when we read, for instance, in our text, verse 29, the last verse, we sort of default when we read this, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment upon themselves. My guess is most Lutherans, when they hear that, they automatically jump to thinking that means without discerning the body of Christ, that must mean somebody who doesn't believe Jesus is truly present in the Lord's Supper. Now, I absolutely believe in the mysterious, supernatural, real presence of our Savior in communion. And I actually think that is almost exactly what is being taught in verse 27. Verse 27 here says, whenever the someone eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, they will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. See, it's really hard to sin against something unless it's somehow present there, right? So that's teaching real presence. I don't think that verse 29 is exclusively or even primarily teaching real presence. Because in the context of what the Apostle Paul has been talking about, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 12, when he talks about the body of Christ, he's talking about the body of believers. So when he says you're eating and drinking, you're sinning against your neighbors, you're not discerning or caring about the body, admittedly, there's a lot of grammatical and exegetical questions here, but he's not only concerned that the Corinthians are going to fail to recognize the real presence of Jesus in communion. He is concerned about that. He's also concerned that they are not recognizing the body that they belong to. They are clearly not treating their body, Christ's body, very well. They are not recognizing and practicing grace in God's family, even as they receive the true, tangible grace of God in the real body and blood of Jesus. See, a different way to put this, and here's the, the last special word that I think needs to be defined real carefully to understand this text, is the word remember. The Corinthian church is in some respects dismembered. They need to celebrate a meal that gives them the ability to remember, get put back together. Now, here's what I mean. Uh, specifically in verses 24 and 25, what did the apostle Paul say? 
When Jesus gave thanks, he broke the bread and gave it uh, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The only problem with our English translation and our word remember is we tend to think of it as a synonym of just like recall or memory. In other words, if I asked a hundred of you, give me the opposite of remember, I think 98 of you would say, forget. But in this context, when the Apostle Paul has used the word member or part of the body, he's talking about it the way we talk about like church membership. And therefore, when he says member and remember, you got to understand the English word carries baggage, but actually the opposite of remember is not forget. The opposite of remember is dismember. What he's trying to teach us here, what he's trying to teach us, when God's people don't graciously acknowledge one another the way God has graciously acknowledged us, we rip apart into fractions and factions. We dismember. The fundamental nature of Holy Communion is it is a meal by which Jesus makes it possible for people who are normally divided in life to forgive one another, reconcile to one another, as God has reconciled himself to us in Christ Jesus. The limbs of the body get grafted back together as they are mutually infused with the blood of Jesus. The Lord's Supper connects things and people like bread and wine with body and blood. God with us, broken sinner to broken sinner. The Lord's Supper connects things and people that would otherwise be fragmented by sin in the world. Let me give you a brief overview then, because this is, this is a little bit of a catechism review here tonight on, on the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to say, I might teach it a little bit differently if we we're going on one of the Gospels. Um, but the specific points from 1 Corinthians 11 that I want us to walk away understanding about communion is this special meal, the Lord's Supper, it does five quick things. One, it connects us to the past of God's people because the Lord's Supper is not born out of a nothing in a vacuum. The Lord's Supper is born out of a special feast. The night before Jesus is crucified, the Israelites are celebrating the Passover. And the Passover is a meal that goes back to the time when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and God delivered them. He did not punish them for their sins because they were covered by the blood of an unblemished sacrifice. This meal comes right out of that. It connects us to the past. This meal connects us also to the future. Why? Because the Bible makes it very clear using the imagery of a bridegroom. Christ is a bridegroom who will one day come back and get us, his church, the bride, and we will go and celebrate a meal, a wedding banquet from which we will live together happily ever after in paradise. Communion points to our future reality. The Lord's Supper is a meal that also teaches a mysterious real presence of Christ for us. We take the Lord at his word. Specifically, he says what? This is my body. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Luther repeatedly said to himself and in his debates, is means is. Let's just say is means is. And when we take our Lord at his word, this must mean that he is really present. What he's doing then is he is giving us, did God have to give us the Lord's Supper? No. But he understands that we're psychological and sensory creatures. 
And therefore, even though it's really helpful to tell us that we're forgiven, it's also really helpful to give us a special meal by which we can tangibly, physically, and psychologically internalize the forgiveness that he has given to us, that we can taste and see literally that the Lord is good. So that when we ingest this particular meal, we recognize the grace of God for us and the grace of God in us to go and live accordingly. This meal is also a spiritual discipline. What is a spiritual discipline? It is a character-forming behavior. The Holy Communion shapes your character because as you get to actually taste and eat the cost of your salvation, you cannot forget. You must remember the Lord's grace to you. It means that you cannot dismember yourself from others, no matter how much they irritate you. You must extend grace to them. You must remember the grace that God has shown first to you. And finally, this meal, the Lord's Supper, is a serious examination of reality in the world. Specifically, the Apostle Paul says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. You have to recognize your sinful flesh's tendency to separate and dismember from people and write people off. You have to recognize your, you know, he says, examine yourself. That's not what your flesh does. Your flesh wants to examine everybody else's faults, not yours. Take a minute, examine yourself. Uh, you must recognize your need for God's full and free forgiveness, and you must recognize that Jesus offers it in a tangible way in his real presence in the Lord's Supper. Uh, by the way, a good chunk of you, I think, probably have some Lutheran history, and therefore you're familiar with the practice of what we call close or closed communion. And my, my impression in talking to a lot of Lutherans at times is that they get the idea that maybe close or closed communion, since not all of the Christian world does it, maybe it's just sort of this sort of unique and quirky, idiosyncratic uh, confessional Lutheran thing. It's not. It's a historical reality for the church. Uh, it is respectful and beautiful despite being culturally uh, confrontational because we live in a world that defines love only in terms of inclusion, and it seems non-exclusive. But what I want to show you, this is, this is the, the historical practice of the Christian church, and every year during Holy Week or right before Holy Week, I read a couple of different books on some of the specific teachings that are so prevalent in the Holy Week, like the crucifixion and the resurrection and the Lord's Supper. And this past week, I read one by a guy who's not a confessional Lutheran, because I don't want to just caricature the way others celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I thought something that he wrote here was really fascinating in reference to our concept of like close communion. Uh, R.C. Sproul is probably the most influential Reformed theologian of the past 50 years. And in his little booklet, uh, What is the Lord's Supper? Listen to this. He says, Paul gives these very sober warnings about celebration of the Lord's Supper. Because of this teaching, one of the strong principles that came out of the Protestant Reformation in reference to the Lord's Supper is what we refer to as the fencing of the table. In some churches, before the celebration of the Lord's Supper, the minister will warn people who are not members in good standing of an evangelical church that they should not participate in the sacrament. He will remind the congregation that the Lord's Supper is only for Christian people who are truly penitent. The purpose of fencing the table is not to exclude people out of some principle of arrogance, but rather to protect people 
from the dreadful consequences that are spelled out here by the Apostle Paul. When a person participates in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, instead of drinking a cup of blessing, they are drinking a cup of cursing. This, by the way, so this isn't just like a unique Lutheran thing. In fact, uh, this isn't even, I, I think secular people get this sometimes better than the Christian world gets this because the secular world constantly practices this at pharmacies. Every pharmacist, you, you can't just go up to a pharmacy and partake. Every pharmacist understands that the exact same medicine that could cure you from what ails you, if you take it incorrectly, could actually make you very dangerously sick. It's the exact same thing. Therefore, we must take this just as seriously as the Apostle Paul advocates. Sin and grace is serious stuff. It requires more than a memory. It requires confession and absolution. It requires confidence in our Savior's promises. Therefore, I want to close like this. I understand this is a little bit of a catechism review here tonight, but I always want to end with some specific practical applications for the Lord's Supper for you to walk away with. The first one is this. If you're anxious, you need to remember And what I mean by that is, look, whatever emotion you're walking in here with tonight, if you are at all bitter or angry or sad or anxious or disenchanted or dejected and exhausted by life, I can guarantee to some extent it's because you're not remembering the Lord of the universe's love for you. Uh, what he has paid for you, the cost he paid for you, the, the fact that he would literally go through hell in order to reconcile relationship with you, the fact that he's forgiven you, he's caring for you in a chaotic world by which he promises he'll work everything out for your good, that he's already reserved a place in heaven for you, all of that, you need to drink it. You need to eat it. You need to ingest it and digest it and internalize it. Holy Communion is a special place to internalize the literal receipt of God's love for you. And you need to preach that then daily into your heart. Second thing, unite graciously to those who have wronged you. If there is anyone that you don't speak to right now because you're just so angry at them, you're so mad, maybe you're even at the point that you kind of low-key wish ill upon them, Don't come up here tonight unless you forgive them. I'm not saying you necessarily have to get on the horn and give them a call right now and, you know, right before. But unless you forgive others as Christ has forgiven you, don't celebrate the unlimited and unconditional forgiveness that Jesus Christ has given to us. You must forgive. Thirdly, invite people who are different from you into your other tables in life. God would not tolerate Corinth's fleshly distinctions, and nor will we. Part of the way we appropriately and poetically proclaim to the world the otherworldly reconciliation and love that God has shown to us is to regularly go into our lives and unite with and fellowship with people that we really don't have anything but Jesus in common with. Regularly invite people who are different from you to your tables. Finally, hope for the future. The Lord's Supper tonight is an appetizer for a wedding banquet that means we live happily ever after. God is letting you know he has already made the reservations and you should look with joy and hope toward that wedding day. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, we come to your table this evening 
with humble and penitent hearts. Assure us in a special way that we are forgiven and loved and help us then extend that same grace to remember your body as we recall your grace. May it glorify your name. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.